Welcome to the A World of Difference podcast. I'm your hostess, Lori Adams-Brown, and you are listening to episode 12. I want to tell you about Anchor because it's what I use to record these podcasts. Why do I use it? Number one, it's free. Number two, it's simple. I don't have a lot of tech skills, but I don't need to because Anchor does a lot of the work for you. And as you know, many of you who know, I'm a career woman. I do this as a hobby on the side in my free time, and I love my kids and my family, and I don't want it to take more time than it needs to. (laughs) So thank you, Anchor, for that. It's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. And so they also distribute it for you anywhere you hear podcasts like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the different ones. You can make money from it if you choose to with no minimum listenership, and it's got everything you need to make the podcast in one place. So I would encourage you to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. My guest on today's show is Arturo Jimenez. Arturo lives in Denver, Colorado, where he grew up. He's a bilingual lawyer who's practiced federal immigration law since 1998. His humanitarian practice has represented thousands of individuals in Colorado and other states as well. His law office helps to unify families. They work with spouse petitions, family immigration, naturalization. He has a lot of DACA cases, which is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. He works with visas for victims and deportation defense and immigration court. Um, but mostly what he seeks is to just support the humanitarian rights of all individuals with a specific emphasis on immigrant children, which we'll for sure talk about today in this episode. In 2019, he wrote a book called Dreamer's Nightmare, The U.S. War on Immigrant Latinx Children. And he just basically uses his experiences with clients and at the border as well to describe basically how the U.S. immigration policy has just done a lot of damage and caused a lot of terror in immigrant children for decades, actually. He also has served in the past on the Denver Public Schools Board of Education um, from the year 2007 until 2015. He is happily married to his wife, Angelina, and they have three children. He has a heart for children as a father and as a lawyer, and that's certainly going to come out in this episode because that's, that's definitely one of the things that compels him to work in immigration law. So you're in for a treat today. It is my honor and privilege to welcome to the show Arturo Jimenez. Hi, Arturo. Hi, good afternoon. Hi, thanks for being on our show today. Oh, no, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm honored. Well, I'm super excited about what we're going to talk about. But um, just as a way of introduction, um, just let us know like who you are and what you do and what your experience is with immigration. Okay, um, well, my name is Arturo Jimenez. I'm a bilingual attorney. I've been practicing federal immigration law for over 20 years, and I'm based here in Denver, Colorado. Um, my family and I have been here for quite a long time. I'm uh, third generation from Mexico on, from many of my grandparents. And one of my grandmothers, who's still alive, has been in Southern Colorado for forever. Her family's been there. They're not even sure how far back. Um, I've been representing immigrants for uh, in asylum and special immigrant juvenile status and 
naturalization and family petitions and victims visas for quite a long time. But I also have um, a background. I was on the Denver School Board for eight years and working in the a parent coalition um, for the Colorado Statewide Parent Coalition um, in the early part of the 2000s. Um, and of course, now I'm a, a new author. This is my first book, uh, Dreamer's Nightmare, The U.S. War on Immigrant Latinx Children. And it was just uh, published, I self-published last year in September of 2019. Awesome. That's super great. We're going to definitely get more into the book throughout um, as we go along. But just uh, in terms of uh, your own family, I just, I love it when I get to meet people who are an advocate for immigrants, but they also have the story in their family of when they know their family immigrated here because you know, in the United States, basically, unless you're a full-blooded Native American, at some point in your history, you have an immigration story, whether it's told to you or not. So I just think it's really beautiful that you can trace back, you know, that you're a third generation from Mexico. And that, that's really cool, because I know it does inform how you see immigrants today based on your own story, right? Because we all have our own perspectives. Um, and I know that you are, like you said, you're an advocate for immigrants in the U.S., and we have people listening to this podcast that are in the United States and also around the world. And some of the things we'll talk about are, are pretty common when it comes to immigration into certain countries. Um, but there are some unique things about the United States. And so I guess I, the question, the first one I have for you is, how would you describe kind of what's going on in the U.S. with immigration currently in your own words? Um, right now, it's it seems very criminal and immoral, particularly the way that um, children are being treated like um, criminals and and um, just kind of being shuffled around and lost within our system and then just summarily sent back to their countries without uh, any real um, effort to get them to uh, to connect with a family member or even you know a distant family member. Um, I, I'm just shocked really that even with the, as much as I've seen and as much as I've written about, I'm, I'm still shocked at, at how bad it, it just keeps getting worse over time. Yeah, I know. It is, it is quite shocking the way things have um, sort of evolved in the last several years regarding immigration here in the United States. And it just is, makes it more important for people like you who are doing the work that you're doing. And so yeah, tell us a little more, bit more about some of the work you do on behalf of immigrants there in Colorado and some of the cases that you see. Um, yeah, in particular, in 2014, um, in the United States, over 60,000 children arrived at, at the border. And most of those children, many of them were um, infants and toddlers and young kids under 10. Um, and they arrived without their parents, the, the great majority of them. And this is the first time we saw this, this, um, this large group of children just showing up on, on the border. Um, and right away, I started representing a, a large number of these children. I have about 60 of them still. Um, and it was incredible just the, the needs that they had um, in terms of needing housing and education and uh, vaccinations and and uh, healthcare, but then also their their needs to uh, simply feel safe. Many of them were were fleeing from violence, um, 
you know, there's Eliezer who's in my book. He's, he left at, at uh, 15 on his way here. And um, if he hadn't left, he, he believes that he would have been killed. Um, he was, you know, going to be forced to join a, a criminal syndicate, a gang. Um, and so many of these kids came and they, they had so many needs. Um, and we ended up having to do a like triage for them, having to find them uh, so many services in so many areas. Um, I'm very, very lucky to work with some wonderful um, uh, professionals in, in the healthcare and, and medical fields and also other attorneys who work in other legal areas um, such as custody and family law as well as those who work in probate. Um, and we had to, uh, like Eliza, he, he basically had two attorneys. He had me, his immigration attorney, he had a probate attorney so that his aunt could um, apply for him. Um, and, and we ended up having to uh, put a lot more work into into each of these cases just to ensure that these children, that their health and welfare was taken care of. Um, and also I, I represented 400 dreamers who've applied for DACA um, and, and been following that. And part of the book talks about Carlos who just missed out on DACA um, before the past and how he was deported. Um, so you kind of have these two big groups of kids who are now still in limbo and in need within the United States. And it doesn't matter who the president is or what political party is in power, um, their immigration needs, their their situation, uh, for the most part, hasn't changed. They're, they're still in a very precarious situation. So it's up to us to hold our, our leaders accountable um, and, and become leaders as well and ensure that these children receive the, the help that they need. Yeah, wow, that's so insightful. And it's so true, right? If there's very little that's changed between different political parties and it really is um, an opportunity for us to be not just advocates, but leaders and as you describe um, immigrants, so many of the ones you're describing are children. And so I just, I'd be curious to know, like, when you think of an immigrant, like, what do you think of? Do you think of a child typically? Do you think of families, adults? Like, what is, what comes to your mind when you think of an immigrant? Um, I think for a very long time, I've always thought of, you know, the children, even if I'm representing a family or some adults or even some uh, individuals who are older, um, I often think of, you know, what about how do their kids feel, whether their children accompanied them or if their children came to the United States before they did or if they're left back in the home country. I think just that awareness of um, that we all have, you know, in terms of what happens to the children, you know, no matter what, and to that family unit. And so to me, it's it's really been that that image of a family and those children kind of um, viewing the world and, and I feel responsible um, for what's going on in the world, although I can't control everything and I'm, I'm not, you know, a, a decision maker in, in a government. Um, I feel like I have a responsibility to, um, to help keep families together, to uh, make sure that children, you know, aren't left out on the streets. They're just, they're the most vulnerable of all the populations. And, and even if their mom or their dad is here and they're back in the home country, 
what's going on, what's happening to them. And, and that, those are the images I always have in my head whenever I take on a client or advocate for someone in immigration court, or if I go down to the border to, uh, to volunteer, um, those are the images. Wow, that's so, so helpful to think through it that way. And I, I love how you talk about your own responsibility. And I, um, yeah, it just, I think when we're a part of a community, um, especially in the West, in the United States in particular, there is such a concept of the individual. Um, but our, our society is based on family units and we're, we all have connections to one another. And I think it really is important for us to consider what our own responsibility is in the lives of those in our community and in our nation. And it's just a really good reminder that you worded it that way. So, so thank you for that. I also have another question just regarding immigrants in general and in the United States in particular. What do you think are some of the misconceptions people have right now about immigrants that you would like to clear up for people? Um, I think it's it's been very well established that um, immigrants are much less likely to commit crimes in the United States than, than American citizens. Um, I mean, that's very, I think we have to start off with that and follow that up with two more things. Um, one, that immigrants, of course, pay so much in taxes. They pay into Social Security, and many of them don't see that money back. They pay their um, property taxes, the uh, sales taxes. Um, they pay so much um, that many times we don't realize how much our economy stays afloat and how much our communities benefit and our families here who are already United States citizens benefit from that tax contribution that uh, those folks put in and don't get back. Um, and, and of course, you know, the work ethic of, and family ethic of, of immigrants, um, it's really beautiful um, to see and to be reminded. And I think that's part of the American heritage that, that has been forgotten in many ways. You know, like you said, the individualism uh, seems to overtake um, the idea of, of family, of the family working together and, and helping each other to move forward. And these immigrants remind us of that. Um, and, and they bring so much in terms of, of uh, just a, an ethic of, of helping each other without having to rely on uh, services from the outside um, and doing everything they can, going above and beyond and and they're just inspiring to me. I think a lot of immigrants are, to me, are like heroes. And I think in the beginning of my book, if there's a, a dedication to my grandmother, Eulania uh, mm. uh, Lopez de Calderon. And my grandmother, Eulalia, came to the United States as uh, she was born in the fields while her mother was, was picking the crops. And then her family went back to Mexico and she went with them, of course, and then they came back to the United States. And she told me the stories um, of how hard they worked, living out of their car, having to live in, in hen houses and, and pigsties sometimes in the, um, in the fields that they worked. Um, but then the, you know, the amount of, of dedication that they put in and, and not um, just kind of giving up as victims. And, and she became my hero as a child. She's still my hero today. And I see a lot of my grandmother um, in these children and the immigrants that are, that are still coming today. 
That's so good. Well, she sounds like an amazing person. And I honestly, here in the Bay Area where I live, it's it's pretty much, I mean, probably a positive stereotype that we have about immigrants is that they're very hardworking and, um, you know, immigrant kids that are, you know, the first generation to go into our public schools here in the Bay Area. You know, they experience a lot of expectation from their family being the first ones to be educated in the U.S. And, and there's just a lot of expectation that immigrant families in general, it seems like, are, are risk takers and hard workers, and they're trying to contribute something to make their own lives better, but also society. And I just, I love that part of your story, that that's something that you inherited from your grandma as part of your own oral family history about how that went, and just the struggle. And, um, and it's, it, there's so much we could learn just from your own family story and from the story of many immigrants about what it really means to work hard and care for one another and try to make each other's lives better together. Um, but also, I think, you know, you mentioned earlier about responsibility for those, the rest of us. And I just wondered, why, why do you think it is important for us as a society to care for immigrants? Um, I think that caring for immigrants really is, is about taking care of, of us and the larger family um, and understanding our interconnectedness. Um, that is so important, I think, particularly during this time of COVID, um, just understanding just how closely we're connected. We're seeing the fires, um, the pandemic, and realizing that we really are in this together. Um, and by taking care of the most vulnerable um, sectors of our, our nation and of, of our communities, um, we really are kind of starting at, at the, the very first point of addressing that we really are connected. Um, my mom, and, and again in the book, I, I talked about my mom, she worked in the meatpacking plant in Greeley, Colorado, um, back then it was called Momfort. Now it's called JBS, and it's the um, the it has the most uh, the largest outbreak of COVID in the state of Colorado. And of course, many many uh, meatpacking plants across the nation are experiencing the same uh, COVID outbreaks, um, and many of the workers there are immigrant workers. We've relied on our immigrant workers for all of our our picking our crops, um, cutting our meat. Um, and my mom always came home from there and said, I have to help people. She realized being a U.S. citizen, being an English speaker, that she had so much more protection, so much more um, to offer. And, and she always told me, you know, that they're us and we are them. And she, she taught me we could not simply separate ourselves from the people we live and work with, go to school with. Um, and, and then just consider ourselves separate from them. Um, so she taught that to me. And I think now folks are, it's, we're learning the hard way as a society that we have to um, address these wildfires. We have to address the pandemic. And, and we really have to think through um, how, how we are all connected. And, and if we all are going to suffer, then we're going to suffer together. If we're going to thrive, then we're going to thrive together. That's so true. I love how your mom worded that for you. It's such a good mental image for us to really grasp the reality of how connected we are. It's, um, and it is true, we do rely on immigrants for our food, for our survival, um, which is one of the many reasons that we want to be caring for them. Because like you said, in caring for them, we're caring for ourselves on many, many levels. 
And let's let's shift a little bit the conversation um, towards some of the, the legal parts. So I know that, um, you know, in the U.S., there are people who immigrate into the system through a variety of ways, right? There's here in the Silicon Valley, I, I work in Sunnyvale, and we have a lot of H-1B visas um, in tech. There's people that come in through like a spouse kind of situation. There's student visas for university students. And there's, you know, asylum seekers, which I, from what I understand has been largely shut down. And, you know, there's so many ways to immigrate here. So kind of what are your thoughts on our current immigration policies and processes? At the um, moment? Of course, I, I think we are not valuing um, all of the folks who are coming in through those various avenues, such as tech. Um, we rely so much on immigrants to maintain an, an edge in innovation and technology. And those H-1B workers are, are essential. And you know because of where you're at. Um, and, and the students also that, we, that are coming into the United States, they, of course, pay like six times more in tuition, um, which really mm-hmm. <laughs> does help our, our state and private institutions immensely. But those individuals then become those folks who are trained and become the, the uh, labor pool for future tech workers. And it's such a great benefit to our nation. Um, as well as uh, uh, many of the, the asylum seekers who are fleeing persecution, um, they come in with a, a very clear knowledge of what democracy means, what it means to vote, and you see their, their civic engagement later when they're able to become residents and become um, voting citizens. They exercise those rights and they remind the rest of us that where they come from, many people you know, have to, might die if they try to vote. It's, it's a life or death situation. It's such a privilege um, to have that. Um, but I think also immigration, we are defining who we are by um, embracing those folks who are fleeing persecution, um, those who want to bring their, their great ideas. We also have victims visas. I represent a lot of people who are victims of violent crime. Um, and unfortunately, uh, those folks are, like I said, many of the, the most vulnerable. Uh, many times they're victimized by U.S. citizens, um, and we're able to get them immigration status through the U visa or through VAWA. Um, and, and that really defines who we are because we, we uh, um, are not going to uh, perpetuate um, a, a situation of violence, particularly for those who come so far from their countries and, and have left that behind. Uh, and we've said, no, we're not going to allow them to be victimized while they're in the United States either. Yeah, that's, that's so good. And I know that, you know, the history of immigration in the U S is, is a long and complicated one. Um, but, you know, in recent years, we have a situation where, you know, you were mentioning persecution and, you know, I know that there are certain places, particularly maybe in the Middle East, where there are, for example, someone who is a Christian and they're living in a predominantly Muslim area. And there may be some, you know, variety of persecution related to that because of how certain governments, you know, handle that differently. Um, but with the asylum cases being closed down, it really does shut off that opportunity for those who are fleeing for religious reasons to come into the United States. So I don't know, like, what are your thoughts on that and how you would have um, I think that is one of the defining characteristics of what created the United States was um, religious freedom. 
and um, allowing those who, who left countries or who were persecuted for their religion. Um, in the beginning, of course, many of them were, most of them were Christians um, fleeing. That's defined who we are. And, and by turning away asylum seekers, um, you know, it, it goes against who we are as a nation. It, it starts to break down our, our national character, our national identity um, about um, protecting religious freedom and allowing people to, to practice their faith. Um, and I think it's, it's an assault on, on all of us collectively. Um, it, it broke my heart when I was at the border in Tijuana, Mexico, and to meet the Middle Eastern and African um, refugees who are forced to stay in Mexico in those camps, they've come so, so far from across the ocean. And many of them were Christians who, who you know, saw the United States as this beacon of hope um, and particularly as a place where, where as Christians, they could find solace and shelter. And they were forced to sleep in, you know, in the street or in, in a baseball stadium. Um, and if, if they couldn't find uh, you know, food or shelter, they were just kind of on their own. And it took them at least a month to get a, an interview um, in the United States for asylum there under the metering um, under the migrant protection protocols. And then now they're just being turned away completely um, under the auspice of, of uh, COVID and, and the pandemic. Um, but it broke my heart and I, I heard their stories of how far they had come and what they had suffered um, just on the journey here. And, and that, you know, it still kind of tears me up um, and, and I didn't even get to hear many of their stories about what they were fleeing from. Um, just their, you know, it was, they were traumatized immediately, uh, recently by the, by the journey here through, up through South America, through Central America, through Mexico, and then uh, making it to the border. And, um, you know, it was so hard to see some of them being turned away. They would go to the border each day to see if their number was called and, if it wasn't called, they had to get back to a shelter before there was a curfew or else they would lose a, a bed space and probably a meal for the day. Um, and, and I think if, if people in, in churches and praying could see that happen, um, it would change everyone's attitudes within the United States on, on, from every corner of uh, the political spectrum, um, from every side of, of of the faith and, and religious groups as well. Um, they would really come together, I think, if they saw that, if they just went down to the border and talked to the people there. Yes, that is so true. Um, I, I've heard many people talk about similar experiences that have gone and just seen with their own eyes and talked to people in person at the border and I hear that same kind of thing over and over again. And I think one of the disadvantages of, um, you know, living in 2020 is, you know, some of the echo chambers in our news sources and we're fed certain stereotypes about immigrants that may or may not be true. And, and there's just no substitute for breaking down stereotypes um, besides meeting people face to face for whom that stereotype should apply. And then, you know, often when we do that, we recognize that these are human beings that we have so much in common with. And I think that it's, you know, very 
prevalent among especially asylum seeker immigrants to, to hear stories of trauma and the mental challenges that they have to overcome just to survive are incredible. And, um, and so I, I do think it's just so important to listen and listen deeply and be involved and not turn the other way, but just take this as an opportunity to, you know, figure out what our own responsibility is and, um, and just help people who are in these conditions. Because like you said, this has been at the heart of our, our nation for a really long time and part of our history and who we are and who we claim to be right as America. And, um, and so I guess that just leads me to one question, which is, you know, there are, there is some conversation that I hear. I've only been, you know, living in the United States for the a little over a year. I, I lived in Asia for 20 years and then I grew up in Latin America. And so being an immigrant is part of my story as well. But when I, in the United States, one thing that kind of shocked me is a lot of the conversation that surrounds whether or not the U.S. has the amount of resources to welcome more immigrants. And so kind of what is your perspective on that? And, you know, some people have kind of a scarcity mentality. Um, others are kind of in a different space. But in terms of like the resources in the United States to welcome immigrants, what is your perspective um, Yeah, I, I really don't understand the, the scarcity argument in the United States because I see immigrants doing work that U.S. citizens aren't willing to do on the uh, labor and agricultural side. And then I see also immigrants coming in in the tech industry, uh, many times filling gaps where students and U.S. citizens haven't, um, aren't, aren't following in those fields, um, aren't uh, uh, moving up through education to fill those, those gaps as well. Um, and, and just the amount of waste and, and uh, wealth that we have within the United States, um, if that were to be um, distributed amongst the, the newcomers just to give them their boots so that they could have some straps to pull up, um, I don't think that there's a scarcity. But I do think where uh, those folks who talk about scarcity and are concerned about open borders and um, and about people saying, you know, let's just abolish, you know, the, the border patrol or the borders. Um, they ask, well, what's going on in, in their country? And, and I'm with them on, on talking about solutions of um, addressing the uh, social and economic needs within the home countries. Most of the immigrants I've represented in over 20 years, um, I'd say 99% of them um, would have preferred to stay in their home country. And, and they couldn't. They just couldn't because of the either po extreme poverty to the point where they would die or their, their children would go hungry uh, or because of uh, trauma and violence um, and they had to flee immediately. Um, so absolutely, I think we have to address the uh, economic and social situation, particularly in Central America. And, you know, of course, that's what I wrote about in the books. I know more about uh, the situation there and have more um, opinions and, and specific um, uh, policy solutions for how to uh, assist those governments, those economies, and, and the people who are in Central America so that, and in Mexico, so that they can stay where they, in their home, they would much rather stay and they yearn for home. Uh, many of them, even half of them today, more than half of them say that they still would love to go back, even though their country may be in turmoil still. Um, so the folks who are worried about scarcity, I would say, okay, if, if 
you know, I don't want to argue too much about that, but we can agree that we need to uh, uh, find a way for immigrants to stay in their countries if they so desire. And that kind of solution, you know, always, you know, their, their eyes brighten the, the people who talk about scarcity or anti-immigrant. And they're like, oh, good, let's, you know, let's talk about the solution. And I'm, I very much want to be a part of that conversation and find common ground um, how we can help immigrants in not just um, providing more services in the United States, but addressing the entire situation, including the home country. Yes, that, that is so, so good. And I'm, it's such a, an important part of the conversation. I think that, you know, if people are immigrating anywhere in the world, you know, it typically is because life is just not sustainable elsewhere for whatever reason, even if it's just they're trying to build their own career in tech in a different way, anything from that to, um, you know, persecution or like fleeing violence and, and all of those things, if life isn't sustainable for whatever reason, and that's why they're coming, but it doesn't mean they don't love their home country and don't long for it to be different there for, for all those reasons. And so it is, obviously, this is about our international relations in the United States as well, and, and our leaders, um, you know, having integrity in those areas as well to be the kind of nation that is, is nation building and and not tearing down other nations or making our nation better at the expense of others, which causes more reasons for immigration to happen. So the next question I have is, um, I would just love for you to speak to what are some practical ways that people could help immigrants? In this um, I think some, some very practical ways would be to um, very easily, if, if you're able to contribute to those organizations that are assisting uh, immigrants. Many of the churches, of course, are doing wonderful work um, in terms of providing social services and food and housing um, to immigrants. That's the easiest way because um, if you're busy, if you have things going on, if you can give a little bit to them, there are organizations who are already doing so much. Um, for those who want to get um, even more involved uh, in working with immigrants and um, I mean, you can go as deep as you would like. There are a number of my friends and colleagues who are really looking at um, becoming foster parents, becoming um, uh, certified as and uh, approved as foster parents so that they can go ahead and take some of the children who've been put into these uh, private foster care facilities. They're overloaded. Um, you know, we've had, you know, over 50,000 uh, every year since 2014, and, and there are um, these private foster care facilities that are being run all over the nation, not just in Texas, um, not just along the U.S.-Mexico border, but they're also in Pennsylvania and Michigan. We have one here in Colorado. Um, they're in California. They're all over the nation, and um, those kids who are there um, you know, could benefit greatly from uh, a foster family who uh, wants to make sure that, that their mental and uh, physical health and their spiritual health is addressed because by staying in, in these private foster care facilities, they often get the, the least amount of attention um, to their needs. They, they only get the basics um, and they're warehoused basically. And we've lost 4,000 of these kids who have kind of disappeared. Um, you know, a, a handful of them have walked off right into, into the society. 
um, and another handful have found, you know, their their family members, but there are still thousands where we don't know what happened to those children. Um, and they're either homeless or they've been uh, pulled into, um, uh, into you know, the, the sex labor trade. Um, you know, we, we suspect that some of them have been, um, you know, pulled into, uh, uh, you know, the harvesting of organs and, and the U.S. government just kind of has put up its, its hands in the air and says, well, we're not sure what happened to these about 4,000 kids and maybe more. And we just don't know where they went. And even some of the parents are saying, okay, we're, we're trying to reunite. We know that these children were um, assigned to a foster care facility and, and I, I want my child back. And even if we have to go back to a home country, if it's in Guatemala or El Salvador, and we have no idea where these kids are at. So we can um, ensure that, you know, one by one, these children have uh, the help that they need and, and are cared for and that they're not, um, that they're not abused. Wow, that's just such important work. And um, I just think even just for one child to have a home where they feel safe and that they can be protected and, and have, you know, adequate health, both spiritually and physically and mentally, it's, it's such an important part of it as, on an individual basis. So that's really good advice. And um, as we move from there into systemic ways that people could help, what are some of your thoughts around that? I know there's a lot of systems that are broken or or need fixing. And so as you think about some of our systems in the U.S. around immigration, what are some systemic ways um, people can You know, there's a, a couple easy ones. There was the DREAM Act that was um, introduced in way back in 2001 by Republican Senator Orrin Hatch in Utah. And the, the DREAM Act would provide for an earned residency um, for those kids who came here as children um, you know, without, it's, it's not their, their fault or their decision that they were here. They've grown up with um, all of our kids and they're an integral part of our, our country, our society. And, you know, as long as they study and graduate, um, the DREAM Act was to allow them to then earn their residency. And if they earn their residency, then eventually in many years to earn their own citizenship. And the DREAM Act has failed to pass um, Congress uh, over 10 times now. Um, of course, that's the, the easy one to, to pass the DREAM Act and include those folks. Um, the other thing we can do is, is to take uh, children out of the immigration courts. And I'm not even sure if, if uh, the general public in the US realizes that we have children who are going to court like criminals um, uh, you know, I tell some stories in the book, of course, you know, of like an eight-year-old I saw chained um, and shackles on his legs and, and had handcuffs on his hands and then a little orange jumpsuit. And he was shuffled into court. And people really don't realize that we're um, putting these children in front of an immigration judge and they're being asked uh, complex legal questions around uh, political asylum and particular social group and persecution groups and, and legal questions, and they, they have no right to an attorney. Um, so taking kids out of that court system um, would be really, really key. It would also save our 
government and our taxpayers so much money um, and unclog those immigration courts to take them out. Um, we could easily train more asylum officers at the border who could easily find those children who are, are fleeing, who are eligible for asylum and grant them without making them wait to see a judge. Um, more importantly, um, I think we should provide them with, uh, with an attorney, but not just a, a legal attorney. We should provide them with like a guardian ad litem. Um, and, and, you know, some people are familiar with that. Oftentimes, uh, it's kind of like a social worker slash attorney who's assigned to uh, children and who've been abandoned or neglected or even to children in the middle of, a, uh, of, a, of an ugly divorce might get a, a guardian ad litem. Um, if we were to assign that type of advocate to a child, we could ensure that they weren't abused, that they had their, their legal uh, applications um, were covered, that they are, you know, that their health is okay because we have a number of kids that keep dying within detention. Um, and, and there's just so much that these, um, uh, I call them IGALs or Immigration Guardians at Litem could do to advocate for these children. And we could pay for that by simply taking them out of the immigration court process. Um, so it'd be, you know, a, it wouldn't be an, an extra cost to the government. Um, and like I said, taking them out of court would free up so many resources and so much money uh, towards that end. Um, of course, the economic aid, um, specifically we, we see a, a revolving door of, um, and, and the only uh, of deportees who are, who've uh, committed some criminal offense, have gone into the criminal justice system in the US and then are deported, uh, particularly to Central America. And they're recruited, force recruited into criminal syndicates and gangs, uh, many of which uh, operate out of the prison system in the US. And we give them a free ride home uh, to their, uh, uh, you know, their their job site, so to speak, and we perpetuated this uh, these drug cartels uh, within Central America by um, through our own criminal justice system that has to be reformed. And the only folks that seem to really care about those individuals are um, some very very active evangelical churches in Central America who have reached out to these individuals and said. You do not have to, um, you know, stay with these criminal syndicates. We'll help you to leave. We'll help you to start a new life. Um, and and we in the United States have to support those efforts because they they have success, and they are stopping a vicious cycle of of drug cartels, who then of course sell the drugs in the United States. Right, we're the largest market for drug use, um, and then we. Uh, send these people back. We pay for their their plane ride back to uh, where their criminal syndicate is growing or or distributing. Um, and, and we have to look at ourselves and say, what is our part in continuing this um, uh, illegal uh, activity, whether it's drugs or um, uh, you know smuggling of individuals for the sex trade and even children. Um, we have to stop those criminal syndicates from operating outside and then um, inside the United States as well. Well, 
Wow, that is um, so insightful. And I just, I'm so grateful that you broke it down for us in those very specific ways. And it is so encouraging to know that so many evangelical churches in Central America are actually seeing good results. And it's just another reminder that we need to have a posture of humility in North America, um, that as Christians, those of us who are Christians, um, we have a lot to learn from the global church. There's no one church in any nation that has a monopoly on on how that's supposed to look. And, and when we see people having success in a very difficult area such as this, it means certainly they can be our teachers, these evangelicals in Central America. We would have so much to learn from them. And um, it is something to be very prayerful about for those of us who are praying people. And as you described, just a child in the criminal justice system, so vulnerable and without the kind of representation they would need to answer these very adult-like questions, it really is just heartbreaking to think of that system and how broken our criminal justice system is in general. I mean, a lot of us probably listening are somewhat aware about, you know, the drug issues in the United States and and um, and also just the sex trafficking that goes on. But just knowing that these are these are opportunities for us to speak into the system. Those of us who vote, those of us who, um, you know, advocate in government um, or who are in the legal system. There's just everybody just has a part to play in this system because it's a system we're a part of that we should, in the U.S., with democracy, be, to, be able to speak into and, and to make those choices. So thank you for enlightening us with all of these. This is very, very helpful. As, a, as just a closing question, I just would love for you to leave us with a story. Um, any story of an immigrant that you think captures what people really need to know about yes, immigrants? Yes, um, uh, I mentioned earlier Elisa. He's a, a young man who, uh, he's, an, he's a Mayan uh, an indigenous individual from Guatemala um, and, and speaks the Mayan language. And he and his family, um, you know, he grew up without a father, um, you know, because of the, the civil wars and the unrest within Central America, many of the men were disappeared, either killed or we don't know what happened to them. So you have um, these huge numbers of, of widows who are raising uh, fatherless children, and and Elisard found himself in that situation. Um, of course, because of the the uh, criminal syndicates that operate now out of Guatemala, um, he was expected once he became an, a teenager to not help support his mom like he had been doing um, in their little rural community, um, but was expected to join their uh, their gang and and engage in in killing and extortion and kidnapping. Um, at the threat of his own life. So he, he fled to the United States, um, had to cross through uh, Mexico, um, endure a lot of hardships um, as a young man to get here. Um, and then when he did, it was, he's the lucky one. When he got here, somehow he found his aunt in Greeley, Colorado, very far into the interior. He had no number, he had no address. All he had was her name and where she lived and a very kind person in, in a Texas uh, shelter um, found her in the, uh, you know, on the internet under the white pages, called her and she had no idea he was even in the United States and it was almost Christmas time and they said, we'll, we'll fly him up to you and in uh, Denver, you could pick him up. Um, and she said, no, 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 I'm, I'm going. Her and her husband and her children immediately flew down to, to Texas, um, down to that foster care facility, 
and picked him up right before Christmas to ensure that he would not spend uh, Christmas alone in an institution. And they took him back to Greeley, Colorado. He's now graduated from high school. He was a, a soccer star. He's uh, a wonderful young man who is uh, trying to enroll in, in higher education now. Um, he's working. Um, Eliezer is, you know, it's incredible. And his aunt who picked him up, um, she, uh, her name is, is Susana. She's also in the book. She similarly fled Guatemala when she was 16 um, and then was able to turn around and, and take care of her nephew um, who's here without either of his parents and hasn't seen his dad. Um, and, and it's really incredible. And they now are trying to write their own story in their own books. And they're working with other immigrants, um, uh, particularly uh, another gentleman in Oregon. Um, and they are working on, on writing their story as uh, Quiche Mayans from uh, Guatemala and their struggle and, and what it's taken to get here and what it means to be here. And so they've helped each other. They've helped uh, others. They're, they're trying to reach out to um, change the situation for other people like them who don't even speak Spanish or English uh, when they get here. Um, and and they're, it's just so, so uh, heartwarming to, to see them and, and all that they've struggled for. And they're just wonderful giving people who are, you know, making our community so much better. So Eliza and Susana, like I said, they're another two of my heroes. Wow, that is just amazing. And I just in listening to that story, it just it gives us hope. I think that um, so much of the situation that we're talking about today can feel very hopeless, but that story in itself just reminds us that there there is a part we can all play, and um, and just that story really captures that for us, and and it it reminds us of just the the connection in humanity. With we all have very similar needs. We have a need to be accepted and be loved and be a part of a community, and and that's kind of the conversations we're having today. So thank you for that story. It's a good one to leave us with. Um, remind us again of the title of your book and let us know if that people have any, um, you know, need to find you or ask you questions. Yes, the title of the book is Dreamer's Nightmare. The subtitle is The U.S. War on Immigrant Latinx Children. It's um, on Amazon. It was published last year. And, you know, I, I know uh, uh, you're used to people giving plugs for their book, but I could say this is available for free. For certain folks who have Amazon Prime and then activate their Kindle Prime, they can access the electronic version with links to government statistics, to government documents that I've utilized in my research for the book. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I encourage people to take advantage of that. I mean, I love free. <laughs> uh, my uh, the best way to reach yeah. <laughs> me is is my email Arturo at jimenezimmigrationlaw.com and that's Jimenez with a J. Um, also, my website is arturojimenez.com. Um, so that's A-R-T-U-R-O-J-I-M-E-N-E-Z.com. Um, and yeah, I'm happy to, um, to talk to groups and folks. Um, of course, the, the pandemic um, did cancel a, a number of lecture tours I had at, at a couple universities. Um, and hopefully those will happen again, but I'm looking forward to 
uh, going out to California and Oregon. Those were two of the places where I had been invited previously. Um, and I'm very happy to talk about the subject, uh, even though most people now know um, about the atrocity of, of children being caged up at our border, it's still going to be very important no matter who wins as president, um, we're going to have to hold those either political party, both political parties accountable in Congress, um, no matter what the political landscape looks like um, come 2021. So I really appreciate you having me. Well, it's been an honor. Thank you for blessing us with your experience, your knowledge, your skills, your wisdom. Um, and I do just hope things clear up to allow you to, to spread this message more widely, whether it's through Zoom or in person or however that looks going forward. And, and just thank you for the reminder that we do need to hold our leaders accountable, no matter who wins the election coming up, um, on behalf of those vulnerable immigrants, especially the children that you mentioned. So this is a really good reminder for us. It was my honor, thank Lori. Thank you so much, for, you so much show, for all the work that you do. Thank you. Wow, Arturo really gave us just such compelling stories about these kids. As I think about that and some of the, the real terrorizing that's going on with children on the border of the U.S., I'm, I'm compelled not only just to read his book and, and talk about it with others. Um, maybe you're feeling led to start a book club about, around his book to find some handles and some next steps on what you can do practically uh, maybe you're feeling led to become an immigration lawyer like he is or an author and write a book about the stories that help compel those of us who read it to want to be more involved and take the steps that we need to take as a society. Man, as a society, we can get a lot of things wrong, but what's happening to children on the U.S. border that is we've allowed under our own watch is is not okay. There's there's as he put as they're being terrorized and uh, they're, they're going to grow up and be a part of our society and carry that with them and, and along with their families. And that's, that's not okay for us to just allow to happen. So I hope that you're feeling compelled to do something about it because of what he shared. And he is really a strong leader in this area. And I just really appreciate his voice on this as a lawyer, as a dad, as somebody who's been involved with the schools on the Board of Education. He really is drawing our attention to the, the children who are innocent in all of this, especially the DACA cases where they've come here with their parents and it was not a real choice of their own. I mean, we could at least start there as a society and I, and I hope that we do. Tune in next week for my guest, Michelle Ferrigno-Warren, who is the Advocacy and Strategic Engagement Director for the Christian Community Development Association based in Chicago. She's also an adjunct faculty at Denver Seminary in their Justice and Missions program, and she's just heavily involved as an immigration, education, and human service policy specialist. So you're really in for a treat. She's an author. She's written a book. She'll talk about that for sure. So tune in next week to hear Michelle.